Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. When we advertised on Facebook that Scots was open for Melbourne Open House a few weeks back, I mentioned there was some interesting feedback in the comments on Facebook. Let me share some. You might have seen them if you're part of our Facebook page. Dennis said, why am I getting all these adverts for Bronze Age zombie myth indoctrination? Pete said, churches and religion, the cause of all wars, hate, greed, segregation, etc., through the eons. Churches, corporations of greed, scaremongering scammers, child molestation. Paul says, you'll have a pathetic, lame, smart something answer, but get real. Religious people are selfishly trying to force their lies onto others. They will not accept reality. Don't spread your natural fertiliser where it isn't wanted. Julie, never ever force any religion on anyone. It is a personal choice, always. Andrew posted this one. God can do anything except make his own money. That's why he needs your money. To which I replied, Andrew, nothing we are doing at Scots Church is chasing your money. To which he replied, yeah, all con artists say that. Now, of course, the census tells a similar story. No longer can we think of Australia as a Christian country. Although I've got to say in my own living memory, I'm not sure that we ever could. To be serious about following Jesus, whether now or a decade ago or five decades ago, or in the time of our Australian convict ancestors, to be serious about following Jesus has always been considered kind of odd, met with indifference, if not with barely contained hostility, which these days, of course, is simply less contained and perhaps a little more hostile, which taps into what Jesus says to his disciples as we continue this morning in what's been called his farewell discourse on the day before his arrest. This is Jesus literally saying goodbye to his disciples. It's interesting, the early chapters of John's Gospel, which we've covered over the past few months, in those earlier chapters, what scholars call narrative time has gone by quickly. John whips through days or weeks or months of action in just a verse or two. But in the farewell discourse and what follows, we get every detail and almost every word. Which means for the last three or four weeks, if you've been here, we've covered no more than two or three hours of real time. Judas has only just stepped into the night on his mission of betrayal. 
And Jesus is briefing the remaining 11 on what lies ahead. And let me tell you, if you think a few nasty comments on Facebook are rough, they were about to get it far worse, as have countless Christians ever since. And if you want to know why, if you want to know the fundamental underlying reason, Jesus says this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Things are heating up. Judas out the door in the darkness. It's a familiar story. I'm sure you you know what's going to happen. But even before the event, Jesus knows exactly what's unfolding. And the world, he says, an underlying dark force, hates him with all its worth. Light came into the darkness, John says back in chapter 1. But darkness is the preferred default option. And so here are some not-so-cheery words of farewell. Peter, James, John, you other guys, if you find you're hated, don't be surprised because you're going to be representing me and that will make you different. Kind of obvious, isn't it? Inevitable from the moment Jesus first called Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel to follow him back in chapter 1. From that point on, they were singled out to be different, as is the case with you and me when we respond to Jesus. I wonder if they read the small print. Listen to what he says here in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, friends, I do wonder at that. I mean, there are some churches you will go, there are preachers you'll hear who promise you the world. He'll tell you that if you have faith, that if you turn to Jesus, you will live your best life now. Do you hear the contrast? Because Jesus himself is promising his disciples that they will be not of the world and as a result that they'll be hated by the world just as he is. I wonder, with an offer like that, who'd be signing up? Unless, of course, we were to keep reading and find out what happens next. But look, here's the deal. He says, you guys are my disciples. I'm leaving. I'm authorising you as my messengers. Like it or not, you're going to launch my church in the world So don't expect it to be easy. Remember the word I said to you, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Why expect to travel first class when Jesus went economy? Here's the point. The disciples of Jesus then, disciples of Jesus now, can't expect an easy ride in a world that prefers to go unchallenged. Some will actively persecute. Every now and then, says Jesus, some, some will listen, just as it was with Jesus himself. The irony, though, being that the world Jesus is talking about is primarily, of course, the world of first century Israel and specifically the leadership of Judea centred on the temple who claim to honour God the Father and yet refuse to know Jesus the Son. The ones who are going to come after him with swords are the temple guards on the orders of the high priests who think they are serving God himself and yet simply don't know him. And so the apostles shouldn't expect any different. First century Christians shouldn't expect any different. You might remember the fear of the parents of the man born blind who we saw back in chapter 9. Jesus gives the man his sight, a remarkable miracle. And yet instead of celebrating, you might remember, his parents didn't even want to be seen with their son in case they were excluded from the temple, from the synagogue, sorry, as supporters of Jesus. Which, in other words, back then means being cancelled in exactly the same way as cancel culture works today. When the actress Roseanne Barr posted a thoughtless, racist tweet, it finished her career. She was immediately written out of the script of her own new sitcom, fired. As far as I know, hasn't been on a screen since. Cancelled, just as if she doesn't exist. Now, now that's how it was with excommunication from the Jewish synagogue. Treated as if you don't exist. They simply wouldn't risk it. Chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus says, you'll be cancelled in Israel. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Thinking they're serving God, but in reality, not knowing him at all. They will do these things, verse 3, because they have not known the Father, nor me. Knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus his Son go hand in glove. Because you might remember here in John's Gospel, John's big point from the beginning has been that Jesus the Son comes into the world unambiguously to make his father known. So hating him as they do, 
they're hating his father as well. Which for Jesus, you'll notice, is no real surprise given the experience of King David in Psalm 38. There are actually three Psalms where David says something very similar. It's hard to pick which one Jesus is thinking of here, but Psalm 38, here's David. He says, But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me without cause. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Another psalm, he says, those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs of my head. Jesus says, as it was with David, so it is with me. And so it will be with you. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Now, can I pause here for a moment to make the point that if you think personally you are getting a hard time because of your faith in Jesus, that might actually be true. It's not surprising. Although, on the other hand, sometimes it's worth reflecting on whether that is actually the case. A few years later, the Apostle Peter writes to Jewish Christians facing persecution, he says this, For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. In other words, if you're persecuted, make sure it's for doing right and not just that you're being hard to get on with or arrogant or thinking it's your job to tell everyone else what to do because you're right and they're not. Sometimes it's hard to tell, isn't it? Although you've got to say that in all sorts of ways, people acting publicly in the name of Jesus haven't actually been tracking that well, have they? Just in the last few months, if you follow the media, there's been the Southern Baptist scandal. Sex, power, cover-ups. The Hillsong scandal. Power, money, hotel rooms, cover-ups. For anyone following the wider American megachurch scene, the Bill Hybels scandal. Sex and money and power and hypocrisy and cover-ups. The Mark Driscoll scandal, power and arrogance and a cover-up. Not to mention the long tradition of churches that just seem to be out to make money and fundraise, using every opportunity to take instead of to give. Our reputation to have an obsession with sex, a desire to tell everyone else what to do while it seems we don't even do it ourselves. Probably sometimes the world at large just hates Jesus without any cause at all. But other times we have given them plenty of cause 
Some of the pushback's well-deserved, which means we need to heed the Apostle Peter's advice and do much better. Because Dennis and Pete and Paul and Julian Andrew, who I quoted at the start, the church has given them so much ammunition. But still, the bottom line is, even when we are being blameless, even when our witness is winsome and our music is marvellous and our architecture is awesome, we are still going to face rejection anyway in the same way Jesus did. And so we shouldn't be surprised because even if Jesus does reveal the Father to the world, that's not what the world really wants. There is that preference in the human heart for darkness. And if you are serious about following Jesus and doing right, you need to be ready for that and not alarmed by it. Living humbly, graciously, generously as a follower of Jesus and yet, and yet quite ready in lots of ways to be excluded for it by family or friends, cancelled in your workplace maybe, for your outlandish and outdated ideas, mocked on social media, pilloried in the press. And if you have experienced that, you'll know it's painful. You might have even opted for safety, the same way the parents of that, that blind man did in chapter 9, keeping silent out of fear of exclusion. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm telling you this not to scare you, but to prepare you. To prepare you for what it's going to be like. And he wasn't wrong, was he? I'm telling you this so you're not tempted to give up. I've said all these things to you, chapter 16, verse 1, to keep you from falling away. Again, verse 4. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Forewarned is forearmed. I told you in advance, so be bold and speak anyway. Because that, of course, is what the apostles have got to do. And we too. And again, to be clear, that was exactly the experience of the apostles themselves and of the first century Christians and Christians through the ages and Christians today, whether overtly in Afghanistan or China, or perhaps more subtly in Melbourne today, in your workplace or your school or at uni, in a way that does make you want to keep quiet about your loyalty to Jesus. And yet Jesus assures them they are going to have help from the helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit yet to come. That they are going to be energised and encouraged by God's Spirit at work in them. As the promise is, we are too. The apostles will supernaturally bear witness to what they've seen from the beginning. 
and we are called to keep passing that on. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So friends, as we share in communion today, it is something of an invitation to join Jesus in his death, to willingly identify with him in his rejection. Will you do that? An invitation to publicly eat and drink together in a way that both commemorates his death and boldly proclaims it. Tonight at our 5pm service, Grace Bailey is going to be baptised and admitted to membership of Scots, which, when you think about it, is courageous, isn't it? Saying, I am publicly standing with Jesus, who was rejected and shamed, not for any wrong, but for right. And I'm ready and willing to face that same kind of rejection and shaming too, to stand as being different to the world because I'm sticking with him. And it's worth it. Friends, it is a challenging call to not lose heart, to be ready for opposition, to face whatever comes with courage and not despair. God's spirit is ready to help us with that. So as we prepare to share in communion together, let's pray for that strength and that encouragement. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.